Coming up, I count down my top 10 films of 2019. Welcome back to the Film and Food Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, and thank you so much for joining us again for this week's episode. I'm all by myself this week. I don't have any guests joining me for this week's episode, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be a great one because we're counting down my top 10 films of 2019. And yes, yes, I know that it's already June of 2020 already, but I only made this podcast one episode ago, and you can't blame me for wanting to share my favorite films of 2019. We haven't had many new releases from 2020 yet due to the coronavirus situation and so I wanted to take the opportunity to share what was an incredible year in film. 2019 had some absolutely amazing, incredible films and so I want to share with you my favourites and hopefully there'll be some you have seen, hopefully there'll be some that you haven't seen and that you can walk away knowing some great films that you can watch when you have the time. So before we dive into this list, I want to give you a few of my year in review statistics. In 2019, I saw 25 films that were released in the calendar year of 2019. And that's according, of course, to the US release. This is a bit of a down year for me as I usually reach 30 or 40 on my list by the time it's about six months after that calendar year, if that makes sense. This is a bit of a down year for me, but 2019 was a very busy year for me. I got married, I did a whole bunch of other things, but I was able to catch up with a whole bunch of the amazing films that were released in 2019. I also want to let you know some major films from 2019 that I haven't seen, just so that you know that they're not going to be on my list. Those are Ford vs. Ferrari, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Midsummer, Pain and Glory, Honeyland, A Hidden Life, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and I sadly haven't been able to watch The Last Black Man in San Francisco because they have not released it in Australia as I'm aware of so far in any format. So, those are the films that I haven't yet been able to see and I'm hoping to catch up with at some point, but those will not be on the list. Okay, now it's time to talk about some films. Before I dive into my top 10, I want to give you a few honorable mentions. The first honourable mention for me is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. Now, this may be highly controversial to have this movie outside of my top 10. It's currently sitting at 11, but I just wasn't expecting the film that Quentin Tarantino gave to me when I first watched it. And this may be my own fault because it really was different to any other film that I'd seen from him previously. I had my own expectations, I had my own ways of seeing had my own expectations of what Quentin Tarantino would bring to this, and I still had an amazing time. The performances by Leonardo DiCaprio, by Brad Pitt, by Margot Robbie, and by the whole cast and crew were incredible. The cinematography is amazing, the music is great, and the story is quite compelling. However, it just didn't hit me the same way that I thought it would. And no doubt, this movie is going to improve on a rewatch, but I just haven't had the time to get around to rewatch it again. What concerned me the most about this movie, however, was how the last act seemed to compromise and come out of nowhere compared to the rest of the movie. It's so, it's definitely high on my rewatch list and I am fully aware that it's probably my own expectations that got in the way of me loving this movie more than I do at the moment, but it's currently sitting outside of my top 10 
and an honourable mention. Another honourable mention for me is The Two Popes. Another honourable mention for me is the Netflix film The Two Popes, which stars Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. I really enjoyed this film and especially its screenplay as it tackles so many issues to do with religion and politics and the two different compromising views between the two different popes in this film. And so I highly recommend it to watch, but it just didn't make my top 10. Another great honourable mention is the Oscar-winning documentary American Factory. This is also on Netflix, and I was blown away by the contrasting worldviews that clash together when we see a Chinese company open a factory in America that has Chinese workers and American workers working together. This is an eye-opening and thought-provoking documentary that got me, someone who doesn't care about factories at all, quite invested into the story and seeing the range of responses that come from this unique partnership. Highly recommend it. It's on Netflix and just missed my top 10. I also have another documentary which rounds out my honourable mentions, which is Apollo 11. This is, an Im- this is an incredible documentary and it's sitting at number 12 on my list at the moment. It just didn't make my top 10 and it is unlike any other documentary you may have ever seen. It is completely comprised of restored footage from the Apollo 11 mission. There is absolutely no cutting back to a talking head in the modern day. It is all just focused on the Apollo 11 mission. So it is a feat of editing and it's also a feat of music as we join together with the watchers, with the onlookers, with the whole world as we see this remarkable human feat achieved. You may think that that story doesn't work of just editing together different clips from the Apollo 11 mission, but all of the pieces create a cohesive whole that creates an exhilarating and inspiring documentary experience. So, those were my honourable mentions, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Two Popes, American Factory, and Apollo 11. All great, great films that just missed my top 10, and my top 10 will probably be changing all the time. You never always feel the same about your top 10 list, about films, as you go along, so this is subject to change. So go check out those movies if you haven't already, I highly recommend them. Okay, so coming in at number 10 for me is Toy Story 4. Now, before I watched this movie, I would have been the first person to tell you that Pixar was ruining its perfect Toy Story trilogy. Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 comprise one of the best trilogies of all time, and Toy Story 3 is the perfect emotional ending to the arcs of Woody and Buzz and the rest of the toys. Or, so it seems. I was astonished how Toy Story 4 not only satisfied and completed a quadrilogy, but also convinced me how necessary it was in the series as a whole. Of course, Toy Story 4 introduces one of Pixar's funniest characters, Forky, played brilliantly by Tony Hale, but it also carries on the thematic arc of Woody. You see, Woody has always been the one holding the toys together, spurring them on, being the leader, making sure they're being loyal to Andy. And so, without spoiling it, we get a picture-perfect ending for Woody's character arc, his thematic arc that was completely earned and completely and beautifully wrapped up his arc, which left me, again, a sobbing mess as I remarked on how, how on earth Pixar was able to do it again for a fourth movie. Toy Story 4 is also Pixar's most beautifully animated movie. The opening scene in the rain shows how far Pixar has come in its animation. It is truly incredible and you couldn't tell me that some of the scenes in the movie were not real life. Plus we get all sorts of new fun characters 
like Duke Kaboom, played by Keanu Reeves, and Ducky and Bunny, played by Kay and Peel. Together, all these elements create just such a wonderful entry into Toy Story 4's quadrilogy, one that convinced a skeptic in myself that this movie wasn't really meant to be made. And so I was quite astonished by how good Toy Story 4 was. And at number 9, we have Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi. It became apparent when Jojo Rabbit debuted that this was a film that was going to be a love-it-or-hate-it type of movie. Taika Waititi deals with a touchy subject here. Now, this movie for me completely works. It is a dark comedy. Jojo is consumed by rising up into Hitler's army before he discovers a Jew hiding in his house. Taking a subject like Nazi Germany and turning it into a dark comedy is a bold move and I believe that Taika Waititi beautifully manages the tone in this movie, having some laugh out loud moments but also allowing his characters to really go on a journey and having us emotionally invested in. Some critics have noted that the movie takes a turn about two thirds the way through the movie, quite an obvious mark that I won't spoil, but that it goes from being this light-hearted comedy into trying to earn some dramatic chops, some emotional stakes. I disagree with this, however. I believe that this is a beautiful, sweet and touching movie about a boy inflamed by beliefs that he doesn't really know a lot about. It talks about the power of love and empathy, and I believe it still has a necessary and hard-hitting message, especially in today's 2020 world. I absolutely love all of Taika Waititi's films, and this sits up there for me as one of his best. Okay, at number 8, we have Sam Mendes' 1917. This film caused an internet sensation when it was revealed that legendary when it was revealed that legendary cinematographer Roger Deakins was going to shoot this film all in one take. We did find out however that it wasn't all shot in one take, but edited to appear that it looks in one take. And that is what a large part of the discussion around this film involved. Was the one-shot aspect of 1917 a gimmick with a weak story? I, for me, I thought the one-shot more elevated the story than it was a gimmick. And yes, Roger Deakins' camera work here is absolutely brilliant. Every single thing Roger Deakins does is stunningly gorgeous. He seems allergic to shooting bad shots. He does incredible work, obviously, with maintaining his one-shot throughout the movie, but also the lighting, the action, the way he frames every single aspect of this movie brings you into the story. It adds this claustrophobia and has us follow these characters, making us feel like that we are in the trenches of World War One, that we are in the battles, that we are going along with the characters in this journey. In this journey, we follow two soldiers as they deliver a message that will save a battalion from charging into a trap. And these characters face a whole bunch of barriers and challenges. And you can't help but feel invested in the characters as it reaches the climax of the movie, which I won't spoil, but is a masterful achievement of a climax in a film and had me literally on the edge of my seat, gripping the armrests and watching in horror and terror and in hopeful anticipation that the character was going to achieve the directive that they had set out for. Of course, Sam Mendes' direction, Thomas Newman's beautiful score, all make this an incredible war film, an incredible journey, and one that has you reflecting on the sacrifice, bravery and commitment of all the people who have fought for their country. Great. At number seven, we have The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wong. 
The Farewell tells the story of a Chinese family who discover that their grandmother has only a short time to live. But they don't tell her and instead scheduling a fake wedding to gather all of the family together in China before she dies. The Farewell is such an incredible, tender, beautiful movie that sadly has not had that much attention. Aquafina, who had her breakout role for most people in Crazy Rich Asians, shows her incredible dramatic chops in this movie, absolutely leading the way as Billy, the young Asian-American woman who's called over from New York to China to say goodbye to her Nai Nai, her grandmother. We also have an amazing performance from Zhao Zhuzhen, the grandmother who is being lied to about her health. Lulu Wong directs and writes this movie based out of her own experience of a similar situation happening in her own life. As she tackles the cultural differences between America and between China, between lying and telling the truth, between doing what's best for Nai Nai and doing what's best for the family. It is very, very funny, very, very tender and very, very sweet. And it's just a wonderful film about family that I'm sure everyone can get something out of. If you have grandmothers, grandfathers or aunts or uncles who in your life who you love, I'm sure you'll relate to this story and between the beautiful bond between Billy and Nai Nai. The brilliant writing, direction, music, performances and story all make this one of the best films of the year. And don't be put off that most of the film will be in Chinese subtitles. Embrace it and join this family as it speaks a universal truth about family no matter what language or culture you belong to. Okay, coming in at number six, we have Uncut Gems, directed by the Safdie Brothers and starring Adam Sandler. Yes, Adam Sandler is finally doing a dramatic role. A lot of people weren't aware that Adam Sandler is a great dramatic actor. He's done some amazing films including Punch Drunk Love and The Myrowitz Stories where he shows us his amazing dramatic ability. And of course, the Safdie brothers are getting a reputation for rejuvenating careers of actors who had fallen out of the public's eye. This includes Robert Patterson's breakout role in Good Time in 2017, but also applies to Adam Sandler in this movie. I think this is Adam Sandler's best role playing Howard, a fast-talking New York City jeweler with his debts mounting and angry collectors closing in, risks everything in hope of staying afloat and alive. This is one anxious and tense movie. If you're going into a movie wanting to have a good time, wanting to have a laugh, this may actually not be the best movie for you. The Safdie brothers are known for their kinetic, gritty and realistic movies about the underbellies and the unseen crime worlds of cities. In this case, it's the New York jewellery world, where Howard, who is a chronic gambler, gets mixed up with Kevin Garnett and the Celtics and finds himself struggling to maintain his sanity in a wild ride that involves everyone he loves and all the things that he cares about. This film is just a masterclass in tension. Somehow you relate to Howie and you follow him and you're rooting for him, even though he's a despicable person who can't help himself and who keeps making mistake after mistake and never learns any of his lessons. The Safdie brothers are brilliant in this way by making us feel like we're in Howard's shoes. We are getting the gambling high. We feel it right in our gut whenever he makes a decision, whenever he makes a gamble, and we want to be yelling at the TV ourselves, don't do that, or do this, or it just keeps you such on edge, and it is a brilliant directorial achievement. I also love the NBA, and Celtics is my favorite team, so having them incorporated into the plot is always going to be a win for me. 
The Safdie brothers give us an achievement here. They hook us in with Howard, having us go on this roller coaster ride that is a tragedy at the end, having us reflecting on everything that we were rooting for in the movie and questioning all of the different themes and issues that they're talking about. This is a film that's on Netflix, so if it sounds like it's for you, give it a go, but it definitely is not one for the faint of heart. Okay, at number five, we have Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. This is a film that has lived in film lovers' minds for a long time. Martin Scorsese has spent years and years trying to get this project off the ground, and when he realised that he would need a whole bunch of de-aging technology to make this film a reality, he turned to a bunch of studios asking if they were willing to give the funds, and only Netflix was willing to give the funds to make the de-aging technology possible for the Irishman to be a reality. That is a bit of a funny thing, because The Irishman is directed by Martin Scorsese, arguably the best living director we have right now, and three of the best actors that have ever lived, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. So, was this movie worth the hype? I was so excited for this movie, and I knew that it was only going to get a small release date because it was coming out on Netflix later, that I drove across Sydney to get to a screening of this movie two days before I got married and went away on my honeymoon. That's how eager I was to see this movie in the theatre. And boy oh boy, was I absolutely pleased and blown away by this movie. Now, there's been a whole bunch of jokes about the runtime of this movie. Yes, this movie is over three hours long, but it's edited by Thelma Schoonmaker. That is the famous three-time Oscar-winning Thelma Schoonmaker. This movie absolutely flew by for me, and I actually thought the movie was about two hours long when I walked out of the theatre. It really pulls a magic trick on you, and is just an epic in all sense of the word. All of the performances from this legendary cast are amazing. Joe Pesci came out of semi-retirement to play a menacing, quiet, in-control man, quite dissimilar to what he usually does. He's usually a live-wire performer, but here he's more methodical, more controlled, and there is menace and there is meaning in every single glare and look and gesture that he makes. Joe Pesci is probably the MVP for me. But it is always great to see Al Pacino. This is the first time Scorsese directed Al Pacino. And seeing Al Pacino in full Al Pacino mode is amazing. He plays Jimmy Hoffa. He plays Jimmy Hoffa with his characteristic over-the-top antics but is able to ground the performance in realism and in Jimmy Hoffa's struggles that makes the movie believable and stops Al Pacino from becoming too hammy. But this is really Martin Scorsese's achievement. He is arguably known best for his crime epics and often has been criticised for glorifying the crime world, for glorifying the gangster life. And here we have this movie about Frank Sheeran, a man who sacrifices so much, sacrifices his family, gives up his wife, only to live a life that really he finds out is meaningless. What is the meaning of all this wealth and fame and rising up in the mob world if it was to lead in something that we all reach, which is death? And in that final third act, we see Martin Scorsese almost contemplating his entire career, evaluating his choices, just like Frank Sheeran did. This is just a beautiful, highly spiritual movie that has some of those trademarks of the gangster genre, but also dissects it, pulls it apart, and evaluates it for its meaning. It's truly an epic, it has incredible performances, incredible editing, a wonderful soundtrack, 
and it is just one of Martin Scorsese's best. Great. We're all the way up to number four. And number four for me is Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Now, I didn't get to see this movie in a theater because I was so busy at the end of 2019, but I was able to watch this on Blu-ray this year at home, and I was absolutely blown away by it. I love Ryan Johnson. I've only seen one of his movies, and that was 2017's The Last Jedi, which, of course, was a highly controversial movie that split the fandom, but I absolutely loved The Last Jedi, and so I was eager to see what Ryan Johnson did with his whodunit drama, Knives Out. Of course, we have the all-star cast with Christopher Plummer, Jamie Lee Curtis, Daniel Craig, Michael Shannon, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Lakeith Stanfield, and more. But we also have Ryan Johnson's sharp, sharp writing. This is really an achievement of writing. A whodunit falls apart if it's not well written, if the clues don't line up, if the story doesn't make sense, and Ryan Johnson really almost doesn't give us a whodunit. I won't really give it away, but almost a third through the movie, we have this story flipped upside down, and the usual genre conventions of the murder mystery are flipped on its head, and instead we almost flick between two different genres. Of course, it's brilliant to see Daniel Craig playing the very hammy, over-the-top detective Benoit Blanc. He loves every single second of it, and I absolutely loved it too. The sweater game in this movie is incredible. All of the beautiful woolen sweaters are just amazing. The cinematography is great. The house, the mansion that they live in is wonderful. All of the different characters have such vibrancy and character, and I love their interactions between each other. And also, it has such a wonderful message at the center about being a good person. We see this rich family, this privileged family, humbled and brought back to the ground again and we see what is truly an underdog story and of course we all love underdog stories when i watched this my wife and i were on the edge of our seats we were completely hooked we laughed we loved it it is just perfectly executed it is an absolutely gloriously fun time at the theater at your home wherever you're watching the movie and it is one that I'm going to keep on watching over and over again just to notice all of the little details and the brilliance of the writing and the structure and the plot. It is really just one of my favorite movies. It is such a fun time and it's a definition of going to a movie theater or popping in a movie to have a fun, fun time. So I can't recommend it enough. Knives out. And at number three, we have Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Greta Gerwig wowed the world with her 2017 directorial debut, Ladybird, and she wowed me too. Ladybird is in my top five of 2017 and was a movie that just absolutely blew me away. I had no idea that this mother daughter story would relate to me so much as a man, but I just couldn't help but fall in love with the tender, beautiful direction that Greta Gerwig brings and the universal story of love and family that she talks about. And so I was absolutely stoked for Little Women. First, I read the book, and then I went into the movie feeling somewhat prepared for what would happen. And I was blown away. From the very first moments of this movie, I completely forgot my surroundings. I completely forgot that I was in a movie theater, and I was soaked and invested and completely lost in the world of Little Women. Greta Gerwig uses two different timelines edited brilliant together to tell the story of the Little Women as adults and also the Little Women in their childhood. 
she uses different colors to differentiate between the two timelines. You know, the childhood is in this beautiful, warm, rich yellows and goldens, representing the childlike wonder and nostalgia that they had for those memories back then. Whereas the color palette when they're older is more in muted blues and grays, representing that they've lost some of their childhood innocence, that the harshness and realities of life have taken off some of that glow from their life. The performances are all incredible. Of course, Saoirse Ronan is an incredible Joe March, but really the MVP for me is Florence Pugh as Amy March. I mean, everybody knows that Amy is probably the least liked character in the Little Women books, but she's able to really encapture Amy in a beautiful way, her transformation from childhood to adulthood, her relationship with Joe, every single aspect about her is so beautifully captured and Florence Pugh is just an incredible performer and, and definitely deserved her Oscar nomination for this. And another thing I have to mention is Alexandre Desplat's score for this film. This is probably my favourite musical score of the whole year and maybe my favourite from Desplat's whole career. Just like the film, it is an achievement in contrast. It is able to convey joy, sadness, pain, love, excitement, despair. So many different emotions are captured in his score and he uses the piano and strings in such a stirring way and it really contributes to the atmosphere and the tone of the film. Little Women is just like a warm hug. You can't help but feel warm and comfortable and cozy and just drawn into the world of the March family. Of course it hits on every single emotion. I was a absolute sobbing mess in this movie just by the sheer brilliance and joy and love shared between the March family. But of course, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but you know that there are some certain scenes. And the way that Goick directs and edits a pivotal scene towards the end of the movie has one completely sobbing in the theatre. So, I was just blown away by Little Women. Greta Gerwig somehow has stepped up her game. She's expanded her skills in every single way with Little Women, and I really can't wait to see what she does next. Ooh, okay, we are at our final two. What are going to be my two favourite movies of the year? At number two, we have Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. In many other years, Marriage Story would easily be my number one film of the year. That speaks to how good my number one is, of course, and we'll get to that in a second. But Noah Baumbach has produced a masterpiece here, in my opinion. Marriage Story follows Charlie and Nicole as they go through their divorce proceedings, but struggle to keep their family together. And what we have in Marriage Story is Noah Baumbach's... The reports are that Baumbach wrote this from a personal place after going through his divorce proceedings with Jennifer Jason Lee. Marriage Story could have easily followed a whole bunch of tropes that come from stories looking at divorce, but we also have a very complex and also a very generous outlook on marriage and love and family. Bombach has produced a script that is loaded with empathy, compassion and understanding too, while also putting the audience through the ringer. There are definitely some very uncomfortable and very, very realistic scenes of our two lead characters absolutely damaging and wrecking each other's lives. But what holds this film together is the generous, the compassion and the appeal towards love, the appeal towards sticking together as a family even when one thing, like marriage, hasn't worked out. Maybe it's not a worldview that every single person shares, but it truly is a testament to the power of love in difficult circumstances. 
definitely minds the complex world of divorce, and it's obvious that Bombac has experienced divorce in all of its injustices. One can walk away from this film looking at the divorce world and all of the unfair aspects of it. Our two main characters, Charlie and Nicole, don't want to go to divorce lawyers and all sorts of other things, but instead they get caught up in this game with each lawyer almost viewing their marriage and their divorce as a way to win rather than understanding Charlie and Nicole as characters and people who aren't against each other but just aren't making it work as a married couple. Of course, this is the Oscar-winning role for Laura Dern as Nicole's lawyer, but we also have great performances from Ray Liotta as well as Alan Alder. But I have to mention Scarlett Johansson and Adam Drive, who play Charlie and Nicole respectively. They bring, in my opinion, the best performances of their career. I've never seen them better, and the way that they access all sorts of different emotions and bring them to the table, perfectly understanding their character's arc throughout the film, is something powerful to behold, and is probably the best acting I've seen in all of 2019. I don't want to give away too much of this movie, it is incredibly shot, it has a wonderful score by Randy Newman, and it is just a well-crafted film that will speak to all people, no matter who you are. And finally, we're here. We are at my number one film of 2019. But before we get there, I'll just give you a quick recap of my top 10 so far. At 10, I had Toy Story 4. At 9, I had Jojo Rabbit. At 8, I had 1917. At 7, I had The Farewell. At 6, I had Uncut Gems. At 5, I had The Irishman. At 4, I have Knives Out. At 3, I had Little Women. And at 2, I had Marriage Story. And my number one film of 2019 is Parasite. Directed by Bong Joon-ho, Parasite was undeniably the film of 2019. It made history by becoming the first South Korean film, or any foreign language film, to win the Best Picture Oscar at the Academy Awards. It also won the Academy Award for Directing, Original Screenplay, and the Foreign Language Oscar for South Korea. Parasite follows the destitute South Korean Kim family as they infiltrate a rich, wealthy Park family home using every means necessary to get all family members' jobs in the household. And I don't really want to talk about too much else about the plot because Parasite is a movie that has multitudes of twists and turns. And when I say it's truly unpredictable, I mean it. This is a movie that takes you on a wild ride but also has a lot to say. Its timely message speaks to the class structure and the class divides that keep people apart and the attitudes, frustrations and anger felt by the lower classes who can never reap the wealth, fame and comfort of the rich. Truly all I want to say is that this is just a perfect movie. Everything from the cinematography, the music, the direction, the performances, everything is completely top notch. Everything contributes to the theme and I just want to urge you, go and watch this movie. It's better to not know much going into it. So go and watch Parasite. If you're in Australia, it's on Stan. So go get Stan and watch this movie. And I'm sure you'll be blown away by how good it is too. It's ferocious, it's funny, it's angry, it's satirical, and it's suspense. And it was also my favorite cinema going experience of 2019 and one of my favorite movies of the decade. That is my top 10 movies of 2019. What do you think of my list? What are your top 10 movies of 2019? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. That's fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. Or get in touch on any of our social medias. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, 
all at the Film and Food Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, can I ask you a favour? Share it with a friend. We're still very new to the podcasting scene and would love to get our name out there. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn and SoundCloud. While you're there, we would really appreciate you to leave a five-star rating and review. Make sure you email us. The address is fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. That's fans at filmandfoodpodcast.com. And join us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your favorite films of 2019. What did you think of my list? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Give us suggestions, feedback. The most important thing is to join the conversation. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.